Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the day-long seminar, Laboring in the Fields of the Lord at Southwestern State College in Fort Myers, looks at southeastern Indians and Spanish missions. We'll talk with archaeologist Gerald T. Milanich. The Christian Indians, the Catholic Indians, were burned at the stake. Some of them were flayed alive. Several thousand were taken back and sold into slavery in the Carolinas, and that sort of uh, was the beginning of the end of the uh, mission system across North Florida. We'll discuss the history of birding in Florida. The efforts of a lot of these conservationists in the late 19th and early 20th century led to this multi-million dollar industry that we now know of as birding. And community-based research in Hannibal Square. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The day-long program, Laboring in the Fields of the Lord, at Southwestern State College in Fort Myers, looks at southeastern Indians and Spanish missions. Renowned Florida archaeologist Gerald T. Milanich is one of the presenters, along with J. Michael Francis, George Aaron Broadwell, John Wirth, and Rochelle Marinin. Milanich discusses Florida's indigenous people and the Spanish mission system in his new book, Handfuls of History, Stories About Florida's Past. As Milanich explains, at the time of European contact in the 16th century, there were many sophisticated tribes in Florida with distinctly different cultures. Florida is a real laboratory of anthropology and archaeology. We have a mangrove coast, especially on the southwest Florida. We have beaches and extensive uh, saltwater wetlands over here. Uh, up in the Panhandle on the Apalachicola River in the Terea Ravines area, it's uh, almost an Appalachian-like flora and fauna, very right for that part of Florida only. We have the uh, wetlands in interior South Florida around Lake Okeechobee. We have the forest in North Florida. So we have a lot of different environments and consequently, we have a lot of different uh, Indian groups living in these. And through time, I'm sure they merge together, they migrate, other people move in. But we believe that at the time that uh, Europeans first arrived here, Ponce de Leon in 1513, there were literally hundreds of individual uh, Native American groups. We can call them tribes or polities or whatever. Uh, over time, some of them had banded together 
the Appalachian Indians up in the area around Tallahassee and Leon and Jefferson County were one well-organized uh, tribe or group with uh, elite leaders and priests and a hierarchy of officials, both religious and political, maybe 50,000 people. Here in parts of South or Central Florida and down in South Florida, you probably had some smaller groups in the interior. But then the Calusa on the Southwest Florida coast, an extraordinary society. When I first was there as a undergraduate in the 1960s, I was blown away by these huge archeological sites with mounds and mounds on mounds and ramps and everything else. And the Calusa developed life in what was essentially a water world. They learned how to harvest the seafood, the shell and fish that came out of the, the shallow Gulf waters, brought it in and used it. Uh, we know now that they also grew uh, plants that they, they used too. So uh, if we look at their art uh, preserved from sites like Key Marco, uh, if we look at their artifacts and that, it's different than if I look at what you find up in Northwest Florida from the Apalachee or over here among the Indians that are known as the Ais who lived along the uh, Indian River and the coast in this area. So they shared some traits, but there are also distinct societies uh, with their own specific ways of life and so forth. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, there are many, many different languages uh, that were uh, spoken in Florida and that many of them uh, seem to be, uh, what we know about them, uh, unrelated to other Southeastern Indian languages like were, that were spoken by the Creek or the Choctaw or the Cherokee. When the Spanish arrived in Florida in the 16th century, the lives of the native peoples were dramatically altered. In addition to expanding their land ownership, the Spanish were trying to spread Catholicism. They established a series of missions in Florida to convert the indigenous people. Gerald T. Milanich. As you know, over the last uh, 20 years or so, I've spent a lot of time thinking about missions. Uh, when I started my graduate career back in the late 60s, I got my PhD in 1971, I wasn't interested in missions because I was kind of taught that we know all about them. You know, there was a map, here were the missions, some of the structures have been found. As it turns out, we knew very little compared to what is known now. There are many people working on uh, mission archaeology and history. And what we've learned is that the initial story that the missions were established along a road that went from St. Augustine west across Florida, essentially following a US 90, the highway, uh, to uh, Tallahassee, that missions were placed around that. But as one of my students found out, John Worth, who's now a professor at the University of, of West Florida, John found out that the rebellion of 1656 that took place among the Mission Indians in North Florida resulted in the uh, Spaniards coming in and reorganizing the Tamukwa missions. They moved things all around. So originally, before 1656, we now know there were many, many tens of missions. Uh, and they went actually from up in South Georgia uh, down into uh, sort of south southern part of North Florida, Marion County and below. And then over time, as diseases uh, decimated a lot of the Indians, uh, the Indians had provided labor for the Spanish colonists in St. Augustine. 
Uh, it became necessary for the Spaniards to consolidate missions and put them along that trail. But then also, the Spaniards go all the way to southwest Florida, uh, to Lee County, and try to establish a mission uh, at Mound Key, a famous Calusa Indian site down there. They also try to establish three missions about 1895 in the sort of Avon Park, Kissimmee area. Uh, all of those flopped. Uh, and then, as you know, beginning uh, as early as 1685, the English colonists who were up in the Carolinas and who wanted to kick uh, the Spanish out of Spanish Florida began to arm Indians to raid missions. Uh, they raided one on the Suwannee River uh, in Suwannee County in North Florida. Uh, by 1702, they were raiding down into North Florida and a huge raid took place in Appalachia. Uh, the Christian Indians, the Catholic Indians were uh, uh, burned at the stake. Some of them were flayed alive. Uh, several thousand were taken back and sold into slavery in the Carolinas. And that sort of uh, was the beginning of the end of the uh, mission system across North Florida. Uh, many of the um, survivors either fled west to Pensacola and then even out into uh, Louisiana. Uh, others moved across and, and to missions around St. Augustine, but it was sort of the end of this 200-plus year uh, period of, of the Florida missions. Today, visitors to Tallahassee can experience what mission life was like and get a glimpse of the amazing Native American culture of North Florida at Mission San Luis. The site near Tallahassee, San Luis, is simply a spectacular place to visit. Uh, they have under the uh, head archaeologist there, Bonnie McEwen. Uh, Bonnie and her staff and her uh, exhibits people rebuilt the mission church uh, as it looked in uh, 1650s and 60s and 70s. Uh, they also, another archaeologist, Gary Shapiro, who worked there, found this giant uh, Indian council house, huge thing. Uh, and also a chief's house. And so uh, at San Luis, they reconstructed these. Uh, it's a marvelous place to go uh, and visit. If you want to get married, you can go and get married in the uh, mission church, the reconstructed mission church. Uh, that and St. Augustine are, I think, two of my favorite places to visit in all of Florida. The day-long program, Laboring in the Fields of the Lord, at Southwestern State College in Fort Myers, looks at southeastern Indians and Spanish missions. Renowned Florida archaeologist Gerald T. Milanich is one of the presenters, along with J. Michael Francis, George Aaron Broadwell, John Wirth, and Rochelle Marinin. Milanich discusses Florida's indigenous people and the Spanish mission system in his new book, Handfuls of History, Stories About Florida's Past. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. 
Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to read our Florida Frontiers blog, watch archived editions of our television series, Florida Frontiers, and listen to all past episodes of this program. While you're there, take a moment to join the Florida Historical Society. You can receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, birdwatching is very popular in Florida today, and ornithology has been popular here for centuries. Oh, that's right, Ben. In fact, going back to the earliest humans who arrived in Florida, you know, through the archaeological record, we know that there was a relationship with the humans living in Florida and, of course, the wildlife that surrounded them, including birds. We see that in a lot of iconography. We see statues and images of birds on pottery. But it really wasn't until the 18th century that the uh, scientific study of birds and, and the pattern of migration and how Florida fits into that pattern uh, really came to being. And, and a lot of that work was done by a, a very famous American naturalist and considered kind of a, a forefather of early conservation movements and also the, the science of ornithology, a gentleman by the name of William Bartram. And Bartram, along with his father, John Bartram, in the late 18th century, traveled along the eastern seaboard of the United States as far south as parts of central Florida, recording a lot of the natural environment. Now, they were both very keen observers of both the flora and fauna. They described their natural environment. And for most of the world, uh, specifically Europe, most people had uh, very little understanding of Florida, at least of the natural environment. So a lot of this early scientific work was just gobbled up by both Americans and, and Europeans alike. And it's interesting because Bartram was one of the first to really take seriously the annual migration patterns of tens of thousands of birds that, of course, we now understand in, in much greater detail now. But in the late 18th century, we didn't understand that birds traveled thousands of miles on these annual migrations. They would uh, generally rear their young and one part of the country and then during the wintertime fly south and vice versa later parts of the year. Uh, and I'll read here, we're actually looking at, this is an early printing, this is the first European printing of William Bartram's book that we know most commonly as Travels, published again in the late 18th century. And here he describes this phenomenon that we now know of as mass migration. He says here, quote, Land birds, which are seen in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, from the seacoast westward to the Appalachian Mountains. These arrive in Pennsylvania in the spring season from the south, which after building nests and rearing the young, return again southerly in the autumn, end quote. So it's a brief passage. He goes on to list a lot of these birds and, and devises a lot of the early scientific names for these birds. And in fact, it discovers a lot of new species. But because he had traveled so many degrees of, of latitude north and south, he, he could understand these long-term patterns in much greater detail. So we see that science beginning as early as the 18th century. And again, Florida really plays a primary role in that study. And Florida played a vital role in the development of our national conservation movement as well, and it, and it really started with the decimation of Florida birds, right? 
Yeah, that's right. As the population of Florida began to grow after the Civil War in the late 19th century, people who were coming to Florida were not necessarily interested in just viewing the wildlife, but a lot of the uh, indigenous birds that were here in Florida and also these migratory species that were coming down to Florida during the wintertime were being killed, particularly for their feathers. Uh, in the late 19th century, there was a, a booming trade in bird plumage, and a lot of that plumage came from South Florida. Those bird feathers were then traded in New York and London and were used for hats. You know, it was very popular during the Victorian era for this very ornate and decorative bird feathers to be used in hats and different types of decorations. So the result on these um, bird populations was absolutely terrible. You know, it killed entire populations, breeding populations in uh, mostly the southern part of the state. But there were a lot of early conservationists who recognized this trend and started what you refer to as this modern conservation movement. A lot of that started here in Florida. And I just want to read, this is another item that uh, I pulled from the FHS library collection. This is actually an autobiography, a gentleman by the name of Frank Chapman, who was an ornithologist who worked for the American Natural History Museum. And he uh, describes what he saw when visiting Payne's Prairie, just south of Gainesville in Alachua County in 1886. He says here, quote, as I approached the shore, numbers of ducks arose and sought safety in the yellow pond lilies, growing some distance from it. And here was a splashing and a calling, squeaking and squawking, such as I have never heard before, odd noises of all sorts and descriptions all unknown to me. And I was without both gun and glass. The place seemed to be alive with birds. Ducks were constantly flying from place to place. Coots and herons were apparently common. On the shore near me were birds just as abundant. A pair of pileated woodpeckers with flaming crests were pounding away in a tree above my head, and with them were numbers of flickers and one red-bellied woodpecker. Doves whistled through the woods at my approach. Blue jays screamed, mockers chirped, and scores of birds flew from tree to tree. Truly, I was in an ornithologist's paradise, unquote. Uh, so we have gentlemen like Chapman and, and other conservationists who came down to Florida and recognized that this resource was quickly being decimated. And this led to, early in 1903, President Teddy Roosevelt signed signing an executive order establishing the first wildlife refuge in what is now Indian River County in the Indian River Lagoon system, protecting a bird rookery. It was a very small, it was only less than five acres, but it was a, a very important spot on the eastern seaboard uh, for these birds to uh, give birth to the young and then raise their young. And unfortunately, it was being decimated by these plume hunters. Now, the Space Coast Birding and Wildlife Festival held each January is, is one of the most popular events of its type in the country, and it seems as though bird watching in Florida is, is more popular than ever. It really is. So through this, the, the efforts of a lot of these conservationists in the late 19th and early 20th century, it's led to this multi-million dollar industry that we now know of as birding. And that's essentially identifying and counting a lot of the bird species, both migratory and native species that stay here year round. And folks travel from all over the world to Florida specifically for that purpose, for birding, to observe, to understand, and to photograph the thousands of birds that, that call Florida home. And I want to just uh, point out, I have one more artifact that I pulled from the, uh, from the archive. This is actually a, a book. This gives you kind of an idea of, of that progression and the evolution of how we understand birds and how they fit into the biodiversity of Florida's environment. This is a, a book entitled Birds in Florida. It was actually published by the WPA as part of the Works Progress Administration, the Federal Writers Project. So it was a government-funded project to identify birds. And nowhere in this book does it talk about how to hunt, where you would have seen in, in earlier publications and where to find them and shooting birds. It's all about observation, about the differences and, and plumage uh, and how to find birds. It was geared towards a younger audience. So you can see an effort, even in the 1930s, to force younger generations to conserve the natural environment that is so unique to Florida. 
And of course, John James Audubon came to Florida to do some of his drawings as well, but we'll talk about that on another segment. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The African-American community of Hannibal Square in Winter Park is providing opportunities for community-based research. Robert Casanello, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, has more. Julian Chambliss is a Professor of History and Coordinator of the Africa and African-American Studies Program at Rollins College in Winter Park. I sat down with him to talk about his use of community-based research in his classes. Well, like a lot of departments, uh, we have a, a slot in our curriculum where students can involve themselves in community-based work, community-based research, uh, or internships uh, for academic credit. And our department is called Applied History, and there we sort of work with students who want to go out and have an experiential project throughout the semester where they're working with a community partner. And We've worked with people like the Winter Park Historical Association, the Hamill Square Heritage Center, even the Orange County Regional History Center. And we have a student that's placed there, and they work on a project sort of supporting the mission of the organization, the mission of the partner group. And this gives the students a chance to sort of like put theory into practice, right, so that they can think about some of the tools that they learn as a history major, some of the skills that they acquire through uh, the study of history in a real-world context. Because, of course, we know that most of our students aren't going to become history majors. Instead, they're going to be using those skills of writing well, communicating, and being able to research and think critically about a problem in a lot of different endeavors. So these experiential um, elements that sort of intersect with the community are a very important part of that process for us. Here, I asked Dr. Chambliss why Hannibal Square is so important. Well, for me, an example of this would be as we're looking at um, a sort of like area of concern for myself is Hannibal Square, which is an African-American community in Winter Park. And I routinely return there and work with partner groups like the Hannibal Square Heritage Center or the Hannibal Square Community Land Trust. And we do projects, and depending on the theme of the class, the project sort of shifts in our exploration of Hannibal Square. So last semester um, in the spring, we I was teaching a class on the United States since 1945. That class had a real emphasis on urban sustainability, history, and theory. And our project focused on Hannibal Square as a case study. And we asked ourselves the question, what would it take to make Hannibal Square a sustainable neighborhood in Winter Park? And each student did a series of, of research uh, and contributed to an electronic book that sort of like talked about this from five perspectives sort of rooted in the UN's definition of urban sustainability. I wondered how this informed his own research. One of the things that I, I talked about recently with the students is that the process of creating these projects for them has really, really sort of informed my own sort of like exploration of Hannibal Square. Uh, initially, I was primarily concerned with doing things like oral histories and sort of supporting the activities of the Winter Park Historical Association. 
But over time, you know, as you're sort of looking at the community and looking at some of the things that it's facing, you can't help but sort of like seek out different ways to try to understand the current state of the the landscape in the community and how that might connect, especially for me, to historical antecedents. So it really sort of like primed me to think about um, the origins of the community, some of the the major transformations in the mid 20th century, and how that sort of feeds into contemporary debates around uh, displacement and gentrification in Hannibal Square, which are part of uh, arguably larger debates about transformation in Central Florida. I asked Dr. Chambliss how this research impacts students. I think one of the things that happens is that students who you know might see me at a hundred level course as a freshman might work on a project that's really archival driven about Hannibal Square and then see me later on as, as a junior or a senior at a 300 level course and they're still working on Hannibal Square so there's a familiarity uh, about the problems of familiarity about uh, the, the archival sources that we have access to but there's a real transformation in the thinking right there's more sophistication in their engagement and they do really care uh, students will ask me about well how is this organization doing or oh, have we have you moved forward uh, in the next stage of that project that you talked about in class and that's great because you you do see students so sort of taking a little bit of ownership and, and interest in the local community I mean they're they're residents of Winter Park at some very basic level and seeking solutions and being aware of some of the challenges that are in the community is a, is a way that they become rooted in the experience of, of being a student at Rollins and that's always interesting to see it's always sometimes surprising because you don't necessarily think that students when you start the project are going to be as heavily invested as they are but you know students will routinely stop me and go like, how are things going to Hannibal Square and I'm like well well this is what we're doing this semester I'll let you know how things go you can hear my entire interview with Julian Chambliss by going to the podcast Every Tongue Got to Confess or at communitiesconference.net. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. Islands in the stream, that is what we are. The registration deadline for the 2017 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium aboard the Carnival Sensation is quickly approaching. The conference crews will leave from Miami on May 18th and return May 22nd. Fascinating presentations about Florida history will be given on board. We'll stop in Key West for a tour of the island, including Truman's Little White House and the Hemingway House. We'll also visit the spectacular Maya ruins at Tulum. The theme of the event is Islands in the Stream, Exploring History and Archaeology in Key West and Cozumel. Register now at myfloridahistory.org or call 321-690-1971, extension 205. That's 321-690-1971, extension 205. Islands in the
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us again right here next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org or on Facebook. You can also listen to us as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.